ask you to Peter, uh, please would you take a Bible and uh, turn with me this morning to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 44. Rapidly moving towards the end of our series, and we come to the 44th chapter of Jeremiah today. Perhaps you've had the experience of uh, somebody pointing out to you a bad habit of yours, uh, some persistent uh, habit. Uh, It can be an embarrassing experience, but something much more serious this morning that God would point out to us today our most stubborn sin. Our most stubborn sin. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 44. This word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews living in lower Egypt, in Migdol, Tapanes, and Memphis, and in upper Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You saw the great disaster I brought on Jerusalem and on all the towns of Judah. Today they lie deserted and in ruins because of the evil they have done. They provoked me to anger by burning incense and by worshipping other gods that neither neither they nor you nor your fathers ever knew. Again and again I sent my servants the prophets who said, Do not do this detestable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their wickedness or stop burning incense to other gods. Therefore, my fierce anger was poured out. It raged against the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and made them the desolate ruins they are today. Now, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Why bring such great disaster on yourselves by cutting off from Judah the men and women, the children and infants, and so leave yourselves without a remnant? Why provoke me to anger with what your hands have made, burning incense to other gods in Egypt where you have come to live? You will destroy yourselves and make yourselves an object of cursing and reproach among all the nations on earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness committed by your fathers and by the kings and queens of Judah and the wickedness committed by you and your wives in the land of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? To this day, they have not humbled themselves or shown reverence, nor have they followed my law and the decrees I set before you and your fathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am determined to bring disaster on you and to destroy all Judah. I will take away the remnant of Judah who were determined to go to Egypt to settle there. They will all perish in Egypt. They will fall by the sword or die from famine. From the least to the greatest, they will die by sword or famine. They will become an object of cursing and horror, a condemnation and reproach. I will punish those who live in Egypt with the sword, famine and plague, as I punish Jerusalem. None of the remnant of Judah who have gone to live in Egypt will escape or survive to return to the land of Judah, to which they long to return and live. None will return except a few fugitives." Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our fathers, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. 
At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. The women added, when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes like her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, both men and women, who were answering him, Did not the Lord remember and think about the incense burned in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem by you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land? When the Lord could no longer endure your wicked actions and the detestable things you did, your land became an object of cursing and a desolate waste without inhabitants as it is today. Because you have burned incense and have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him or followed his law or his decrees or his stipulations, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including the women, hear the word of the Lord, all the people of Judah in Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. You and your wives have shown by your actions what you promised when you said, We will certainly carry out the vows we have made to burn incense and pour out drink offerings to the Queen of Heaven. Go ahead then. Do what you promised. Keep your vows. But hear the word of the Lord, all Jews living in Egypt. I swear by my great name, says the Lord, that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt shall ever again invoke my name or swear as surely as the Sovereign Lord lives. For I am watching over them for harm, not for good. The Jews in Egypt will perish by sword and famine until they are all destroyed. Those who escape the sword and return to the land of Judah from Egypt will be very few. Then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This will be the sign to you that I will punish you in this place, declares the Lord, so that you will know that my threats of harm against you will surely stand. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to hand Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, over to his enemies, who seek his life, just as I handed Zedekiah, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the enemy who was seeking his life. Well, this is God's sobering word this morning. And I would be surprised if you didn't pick up in the reading uh, what, I, what I called at the beginning our most stubborn sin, namely the sin of idolatry. It's something which has been described as the most basic sin found in the world. And it's reflected in the fact, to quote another, that the Bible, this book, is a full-scale attack Upon idolatry. Everywhere in scripture, idolatry is challenged and confronted because among human beings, idolatry is everywhere. And yet so often, isn't it true, we don't recognize this danger. And we play with idolatry like a a firework that's about to explode in our face, in our hands. And therefore, again and again, as this morning, God confronts us with the seriousness of this sin, and in particular today, with the stubbornness, the stubbornness of idolatry. 
And so in these passages, in this passage in the next few minutes before we come to the table, God's word will highlight for us four facts about idolatry. Four facts which have an implication for each of them for our lives. And I do trust that that as we then come to the Lord's table, we will come with a renewed sense of our need for what Jesus did when he died in our place. So if you're noting these down, first of all, we learn in this passage that idolatry has a past history. Idolatry is a stubborn sin because it has a past history. It's one of the reasons we know. Idolatry is not the new sin on the block. It is a chip off the old block and off the old block before him. It's the the quintessential generational sin. And we see this in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 44. I trust you have your Bible open in front of you, which is essentially a history lesson in past idolatry. The exiles in Egypt are given what is a modern history lesson, It's not from the distant past. It is indeed a history that they themselves have witnessed. Recently, my wife and I watched the uh, DVD series, Band of Brothers. I'm sure many of you will have watched that when it was on TV. It follows a historical army company uh, through the course of the Second World War. And this particular company fought in some of the most severe battles. They were hardly ever off the front line. And of course, the the, the drama is just a depiction of the events. But what I found very interesting was the beginning of each episode where they interviewed the real men of Easy Company, as it was called. And these men, mainly in their 90s now, could hardly speak of some of the things that they had witnessed. See, what they, what they had saw, the memories were still so vivid. This isn't theoretical World War II history for these men. And, and so it must have been for Judah. As the Lord reminds them of, of what they saw. Great disaster, verse 2, on Jerusalem and Judah. If you want the gory details, you can refer to chapter 39. Uh, but these folks didn't need a long description. And yet, what they do require, if you look to verses 3 to 6, is an explanation of what happened. Not a description, but an explanation. Because you see, they understand what happened, but they don't seem to understand why it happened. They seem to think that the fall of Jerusalem was bad luck. They have maybe various reasons and theories about it. But here in verse 3, the Lord gives the definitive reason. Why disaster fell was because of the evil they had done. We see from the rest of the verse that this is clearly idolatry. Burning incense, worshipping other gods. This was something that they did despite the prophet's warnings, verses 4 and 5. Despite Jeremiah and others saying again and again, don't do these detestable things which the Lord hates. But they didn't listen, they did not pay attention And therefore, verses 3 and 6, the Lord's fierce anger had fallen upon them. And it's as if the Lord is saying, take a look, look back, remember the disaster that came because of idolatry. This would have been, in some of their cases, their own parents that were either carted off into exile or killed. Contemporaries of theirs. 
And it's as if the Lord is saying that it was, it's now too late for your ancestors. But it need not be too late for you. Here's the practical implication of this. And I've got four idle implications, I-D-O-L, implications for us. Number one, each of us has a backstory of idolatry which should inform us and warn us too. Think about this. We all have a backstory. We, we all have a historical history. You might even say a lineage of idolatry, which should inform us and which should warn us. Just think about this. As nations and even as families, isn't it true that we tend towards not just idolatry in general, but to the particular gods of our fathers? Remember the bad kings who came one after the other in the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles? One of the things that we learn from those books, if you're struggling to read them in your quiet times, is just how idolatry passes down through the generations from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. And so Ahaziah, just for one example, in 1 Kings 22, here's what we read of him, that he served and worshipped Baal, Baal was a particular idol. And he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, just as his father had done. See, Ahaziah not only worshipped idols in general, he worshipped the particular idol of his father and his father's father before him. He doesn't learn from the folly of his father's idolatry. He follows him into it. You can see this at a national level. You can also see this at a, at a family level too, can't you? Just think about that family where money, possessions are God. That if in a million different ways it's communicated in the family that what money can buy and what money can achieve is of ultimate significance, very likely the idol of choice will be in that family money. If that's what granddad was after, if that's what dad was after, it's probably going to be what grandson is after. And so I put a question before you this morning. Maybe you've not thought about this before, but here's a question to chew over this week. What are the idols that run in your family? What are the particular tendencies? What are the particular gods that that your family has gravitated towards? I've been pondering this week what the Adams family, with one day, of recent times, what, what, what has been the Achilles heel of, of us as a family? And there are some idols that, you know, it's not too big a problem, it seems, for the Adams family, but there's other stuff that tends to grip us. What are the idols of choice in your family history? Are you learning lessons from the past, from those who pursued money to destruction? Because you see, if we're not careful, and this leads us to the second fact, this is precisely what, we, what we'll do. We'll repeat the past in the present. So secondly, second fact, idolatry, notice, is a present problem. Just notice how from verse 7, the tense changes. Verses 1 to 6, we're all about what you saw, what happened, and why it happened. And it's all in the past tense. But now, verse 7, present tense, this is what the Lord says 
It's as if he's saying, I've got a message for you today. And what is the message? It is that a foolish rerun is in the offing. Like some bad film you've watched and would never recommend uh, being repeated all over again. should never happen. Well, idolatry is back with a vengeance, says the Lord. And of course, the Lord's stance against it is always the same. Being a God of justice, he will not sit idly by while we commit flagrant idolatry. This will result in the destroying of the remnant, verse 7, angering the Lord, verse 8, and shaming the nation. Sound familiar? Yes, this was a rerun. This was a carbon copy of what had happened before in their father's generation. Ignoring the wicked past. It's sadly true, isn't it? The phrase that people say, there's a lot of truth in it. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And incidentally, the Lord is grieved about this, indicated by his why questions. Why bring such great disaster on yourselves, leaving yourselves without a remnant? I've already called you down. Now will I have to remove the remnant too? Why provoke me to anger with what your hands have made, burning incense to other gods in Egypt where you've come to live? Why? Now, I don't know what you, you kind of make of this. Maybe this seems very, well, it is Old Testament. But maybe, maybe it feels very Old Testament. And you wonder, could God be saying something like this to us this morning, today? Could he be warning us today about the present danger of idolatry? I believe that he is this morning. Here's idol implication number two. We are endangered by idolatry today. Present tense. You know, the book of uh, 1 John uh, concludes. Uh, it's a great book, 1 John, but it's quite unusual in some respects. And it doesn't conclude with the usual grace and peace or grace to you, uh, but it finishes with this Dear children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. That's written to New Testament Christians. Keep yourself from idols. Speaking for myself honestly, that's not a verse I meditate a lot upon and seek to apply. I don't wake up most mornings and think to myself, the big danger for my heart today is that I am ensnared by some idol. Os Guinness, who's an astute observer of evangelicals, says this, contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. Just think about that. Do you think that's true? We are little better at recognizing and resisting idols. Maybe you think that's an overstatement. But just think about this. John Bloom, an American pastor, a couple of years ago, I read a quote of his that really helped me deal with this issue or think about it. He said, whatever is your greatest pleasure, that is your greatest treasure. What's your greatest pleasure? That's your God. Functionally speaking. See, many of us, we know in our heads, if we are Christians, that God is God, that Jesus is Lord. But if I could somehow this morning hook up a, a pleasure meter to your heart, a devotion reader, 
What would it say? We sang this morning, I will worship with all of my heart. Is actually all of our hearts given over to worship of God? Or would there actually be a significant percentage for some other things? It's interesting, this week, uh, Richard Alter at the student weekend, he was speaking about how difficult, very honestly said to us, how difficult he finds it to speak to other Christians about his love for Jesus. He says, I find that very difficult. And I can speak to them even about Christian things, Christian ministry philosophies, how things are going at church. But I find it difficult just to simply say, you know, I love Jesus. I'm thrilled by, by the Lord Jesus. I wonder why that is. Is that a cultural thing? Or is it at least in part because our hearts are not as infused as they, as they should be in reality? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some years ago I was chatting to uh, someone who was painfully quiet. Uh, you know the kind of person they struggle to give you even their full name. And I had a couple of conversations with this person. Really struggled to, to get anything going. And on one occasion I happened to, just totally by chance, happened upon a hobby that they were interested in. I didn't realize that this was their big thing. And you know, for the next 20 minutes, it was a new person. Someone just popped out of there. And I couldn't get him to stop talking about this pastime. What is it that gets you talking? What is it that gets you going and people can't stop you? Football? Music? Your children? The stock market? None of, these, none of these are bad things. But very often these are our functional gods. Maybe Os Guinness has a point. Think about that. Thirdly, idolatry, this is a third fight, idolatry is a cunning competitor. Idolatry is actually the sneakiest opponent you've ever faced. It's a little bit like those trick birthday candles that you blow out, you look the other way, and uh, while you're not looking, it flares back up into life again. Idolatry is hard to snuff out, friends. It has tremendous resilience and it has tremendous guile. The resilience is found in verse 15 of uh, chapter 44, which concludes with the very straightforward, we will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. As the people reply to, to Jeremiah, as they respond to what God has said, uh, they are not listening to it at all. Idolatry has a way of resisting God and resisting his word. It's tremendously resilient. And yet, as we come to verse 17, it also has tremendous guile. Actually, there are three, as far as I could tell, three justifying arguments. As the sinful heart seeks to, to rationalize its idols. Sin is irrational, but, but it still tries to rationalize itself to our minds. Did you notice the historical argument in verse 17? We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, everybody, did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Historically, this has just been something that we've done. That makes it okay then. Secondly, they add a practical argument. 
verses 17 and 18. At that time, we had plenty of food and we were well off and suffered no harm when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven. Now, the Queen of Heaven was was a fertility goddess. Uh, Your side of the bargain was that you uh, worshipped her in the correct kind of way. You poured out libations, wine, to her as as a sacrifice. And her side of the bargain, when you did this, was that she granted you good crops and plenty of kids. And they say, actually, this is the problem, you see, because ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven, possibly during the reign of Josiah, who came in and temporarily got rid of all the idols, uh, they say, ever since this happened, we have had nothing, empty pockets, and have been perishing by sword and famine. It's a terrible twisting round of the facts, isn't it? They say the problem is not that we committed idolatry, but that we ceased idolatry. It's an interpretation of the facts that Jeremiah refutes in verses 20 to 23. The exact opposite was the case. Because you burned incense and sinned against the Lord. That's why it happened. You see, idolatry will interpret the facts in whatever way best suits it. And it will furthermore seek to pass the buck. Notice thirdly, what I've called a familial argument. In verse 19, in the family. This was sparked by uh, Jeremiah uh, singling out particularly some of the the, the ladies, some of the women. And in verse 19, the wives respond to this. Uh, The women added, when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes like her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? Uh, In other words, they knew about it, you know. In fact, by law, according to Numbers 30, they had to know about it legally for them to pour out the libations. Now, this is very interesting. This would make a fascinating sermon just by itself, uh, these family dynamics. But a couple of quick things. Firstly, my husband let me do it, or my wife knew I was doing it, doesn't wash with God. You know, just read... Genesis chapter 3. Our spouse is never our excuse. And yet isn't it also fair to say on the other hand that there was a, a gross failure in these husbands to lead their families in worship of Yahweh and to protect their families from idolatry. It was as if they didn't care. Just folding their arms. Knew there was idols in the house. And their wives are baking these little cakes which had images of the Queen of Heaven on it. And they're literally eating this stuff up. A little practical application here. I don't want to get off the point, but are are you considering husbands and wives and those who assist families, which is hopefully all of us, are you considering how you're going to lead your children through the idol factory That is Christmas. Are you thinking and planning together how on earth you will get your children to a place where they worship Jesus on Christmas Day, not all the gifts that they've received? That's going to be next to impossible as it is. Never mind if you're you're not thinking about how are we going to communicate this in such a way that it's not the gifts but the giver. Something to think about. 
End of parenthesis. Here's the idle implication for this section. We must be aware of the self-justifying nature of our idolatry. By hook or by crook, your heart and mind will seek to justify its most treasured idols. By bad arguments, yes. But you know when there's enough of them piled up on top of the other, you start to buy into it, don't you? But ten years ago, uh, now, I came back to the Lord after uh, a wayward period in my teens. And when I was returned to church, I was deeply infused in many ways about my faith. But one of the things I was as infused about was music. And particularly some, some secular music, a few bands in particular. I'm not going to tell you who they are. but And some of their content was pretty unhelpful. You know, I wouldn't want Jesus to listen to my earphones and my iPod with some of it. But that wasn't even the worst problem of it. Actually, the music had really taken over my heart's affections. I, I almost worshipped some of these groups, some of these bands. And I wrestled for months whether I should just jettison the whole music collection. And over those months, I came up with all sorts of justifications. You know, why I shouldn't do that. I mean, I spent a lot of money, good stewardship, uh, opposition research, you know, into the understanding the world and its culture and the way it thinks. And, and aren't all God's gifts good? This was just for me, I'm not saying this for you, but this was for me one area of the world's fear that I still enjoyed and still had a grip on my heart. By the grace of God, I dumped most of the collection. What was unhelpful. Have a a think about that. Be aware. Pray to the Lord and ask Him to help you see where you are justifying idols in your life, in your heart. Because you see, if it keeps going, if if it's really embedded in our hearts, it moves us towards, frighteningly towards judgment. That's our fourth and final fact about idolatry. It has a deadly conclusion. Last week I had the unfortunate occasion to visit the dentist for my six-monthly check. And the waiting room in these places is a case study in denial. They've got toys for children to keep them distracted. They're not so bothered. But they have about 3,000 magazines for the adults. And you go in and everybody is furiously reading. You know how it is. And very soon I find myself reading about pruning bonsai plants or something (laughs) that I'm suddenly interested in because I'm trying to keep my mind off the inevitable pain. But there's a bit of a problem. Uh, In our practice, they've pulled a bit of a fast one on us. Uh, They've still got all the usual distractions, but they also, they've put up this enormous DVD screen, which is basically a a horror slideshow of dentistry. It begins with the usual stuff about how you need to clean your teeth and the importance of that. And then it begins to show you images of rotten teeth and just horrid stuff on the inside of people's mouths. This will be the inevitable result. I don't know why they bothered putting up the screen. It cost them hundreds of pounds. Nobody's looking at it. But you know, that's what I'm like. Are you like that? That's what I'm like when it comes to thinking about the results of my sin and my idolatry, particularly. I just don't like to think about the consequences of what I'm doing now. I just bury my head in the magazine. 
Incidentally, the magazine's full of idols, but that's another thing. As God is showing me clearly, not in some screen, but in his word, the vivid destructive effects of idols. And the Lord, in verse 25, faces these denying people up to the reality. Verse 25, he says, go ahead, do what you like. Keep your vows. But hear the word of the Lord. Your idolatry will result in no association with me. You've made your allegiance, your pact with idols. Therefore, you'll never swear by my name again. Verse 26. And then he has this absolutely terrible Terrible phrase. It must be one of the the most terrible phrases in Scripture. When he says in verse 27 that he's watching over them, not for their good, but for their harm. The Jews in Egypt will perish because of their idols. And you see, the hope now lies with the remnant, actually hundreds of miles east of Egypt in Babylon. You remember the promise at the beginning of the year. The Lord had plans to prosper, not to harm them. But you see, that promise applies to the Jews in Babylon, the remnant there. These people have gone down to Egypt. They have taken their idols into Egypt. And the Lord says, I'm not watching over you to prosper you, but to harm you. There will only be a few survivors, verse 28, a remnant of the remnant, when the Babylonians sweep in to destroy the Egyptians. And... God's word, not theirs, will stand. Then the whole remnant of Judah will know, verse 28, whose word will stand, mine or theirs. For 40 years, Jeremiah has been proclaiming the sure word of the Lord, and people have said, this is nonsense. One day you're going to know, says the Lord. Here's the idle implication of this. We must grasp the utter seriousness of the sin of idolatry. This isn't just some bad habit which is neither here nor there. You know, snoring is neutral. It is. It's painful, but it's neutral. Idolatry, we've seen it in this book, results in horrendous physical judgment. And you know, as you take that into the New Testament, it deepens even more because there's a spiritual judgment. We know this on sin. Eternal condemnation. So what is the hope for us at the end of this message? Let me come at it this way. Spare a thought for Jeremiah the prophet, would you? Remember, this is part of the last message that Jeremiah ever gave. F.B. Meyer writes, It would appear that so far as his outward lot was concerned, the prophet Jeremiah spent a life of more unrelieved sadness than has perhaps fallen to the lot of any other with the exception of the divine Lord. This was so apparent to Jewish commentators on the prophecies of Isaiah that they applied to him, Jeremiah, the words of the 53rd chapter, which tells the story of the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and stood as a sheep dumb before her shearers. Of course, in the light of Calvary, we see the depths of substitutionary suffering in those inimitable words which no mortal could ever realize. But it is nevertheless significant that in any sense they were deemed applicable to Jeremiah. He really is a model of endurance and a model of suffering with the people of God. 
Philip Ryken writes that Jeremiah was not the suffering servant, but he was a suffering servant to the very end. And yet as admirable as Jeremiah is, are we not most thankful this morning for the suffering servant? Who not only suffered with the people, but for the people. Not just with the sinners in Egypt, but for the sins of the world. That's what the bread and wine remind us of. The broken body of Jesus that was given for our sins. Scripture says nothing about the death of Jeremiah. Some people believe that he was stoned to death. Others imagine that he died in peaceful surroundings, maybe in the, in the arms of faithful Baruch, his scribe. We don't know. The Bible makes little of his death. But you know, the suffering servant Jesus Christ is known both for his life and for his death. And one of the things he died for was your idolatry and my idolatry. He was sentenced by those whose idol was self and significance, the religious leaders. And he was betrayed by one whose idol was money. And he was deserted by those whose security was their God, his disciples. And he died for all of us and the idols that we treasure. This morning he's calling us to let go of our idols. To receive the forgiveness that comes through his death. That's our only hope this morning for our most stubborn sin. To bring it to Jesus. To the cross where he died for your idols and for mine. Let's pray together.